While Jesus was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my Son, the Beloved. With Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth, meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock, our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Everything is politics, and politics are everything. Or at least that's the way it feels today. I don't know if it's actually true, but I can remember a time when my family and I were able to watch the news at night when I was a child, and nothing, and I mean nothing, about politics would come up. There would be no brief shots of the Capitol building with sound bites of senators arguing with each other. There were no cutaway images of political campaign rallies. And if there was a debate on television, it certainly wasn't attended to in such a way that it felt like the Super Bowl had happened last night. Now, whatever that time was, that time is long, long gone. Now, we can't do anything. We can't watch anything. We can't read anything. We can't even talk about anything unless... It's about politics. Politics are seeping into every fabric and fiber of our lives. So here I was. I was in the middle of my week. I'm racking my brain trying to think about what I'm going to say in church on Sunday. I knew that today was Sunday. It's a transfiguration. I knew that we were going to be reading from Exodus, Matthew, Moses being on the mountain in Exodus, Jesus being on the mountain in Matthew. I knew we were going to be talking about the glory of the Lord shining But I didn't know what to talk about. I was this close to offering up a prayer to the Lord, please rain down some homiletical manna from heaven so that I'll have something to talk about. When all of a sudden I heard, ding, I had an email in my inbox. I thought, ah, I'd love to read an email to distract me away from the fact that I haven't finished the sermon yet. So I read my email. Inside the email was a link to a YouTube video from a friend of mine. It said, watch this video. So I said, sure. I could use a two-minute distraction, so I clicked on the YouTube video. The YouTube video was a video of two different news channels that had been spliced together, about two minutes long. Now, in the first clip, it was about a minute long, the very first clip, there's Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh has just received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Donald Trump, and he says in the video that America is not ready for a man to be president who kisses his husband so willingly on stage. He continues on with some other homophobic remarks before he moves on to address all of the other Democratic presidential candidates. So that's the first clip. It's about a minute long. The second clip is with Mayor Pete Buttigieg, the man that Rush Limbaugh had been talking about. And he is responding to Rush Limbaugh's comments, and he says this. The idea of the likes of Rush Limbaugh or Donald Trump lecturing anybody about family values, I mean, sorry— But one thing about my marriage is it's never involved me having to send hush money to a porn star after cheating on my wife. So let's debate family values. I'm ready to talk about it. So we get Moses. He's going up to the top of the mountain. He is going to receive rules. He is going to receive the law. And here I am. And in my inbox, I get a perfect video to talk about on Sunday morning. God has a sense of humor, my friends. Now, I'm not going to make this into a who is righter or who is wronger, as if comparing systems of morality would be helpful or even faithful. And yet, in those two minutes, two different people talking, it was very, very clear that both of them have an understanding about what they think is right and what they think is wrong. 
Both of them are articulating their own rightness and their own wrongness under the assumption that everyone listening to them knows what's right and knows what's wrong. The only problem with that is that none of us are right and all of us are wrong. And that's a truth that's very inconvenient for us to handle. Because whenever we talk about what's right or what's wrong, it's just another way of talking about the law, capital L law. And whenever we do it, we do so at the expense of how Jesus and Paul actually talk about the law. Because when we talk about the law, we use it like a bludgeon. We use it like something to hit people over the head, to knock some sense into them. We hold it over the heads of people, of transgressors, and we tell them they need to get better or they need to get out. The law has become our litmus test about who is good enough and who hasn't even come close. But according to Jesus, according to Paul, the most important part of the law, in fact, the purpose of the law isn't to regulate our behavior. It's not to tell us who's right and who's wrong. The purpose of the law is to accuse all of us. The law again and again and again It says that none of us, not even the best of us, have lives or moral histories that are even close to meeting the righteousness of God. So Moses, Moses goes up on the mountain. He goes up there. He gets a sunburn from getting too close to the divine. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And he comes down with these stone tablets that contain the Ten Commandments, the Ten Do's and the Ten Don'ts. The rest of the Old Testament is a story of people named Israel who fail to live to those commandments. Do you know what's the next thing that happens when he comes down? He comes down and he says, look, the Lord told me what to do and what not to do. You know what the first rule is? Don't have any other gods except God. But you know what the people do? They take all their gold, they smelt it down, and they build a golden calf, and they start to worship it like another god. The very first thing they do is break the rules. The whole Old Testament is a story of people who break the rules. Now, if that were the end of the story, if that were the end, Moses comes down and tells us this is what you have to do and this is what you you must not do, then all of our politicking, all of our moralizing, all of our finger-pointing would be fine. It would even be good. We could parade out the ledger books whenever someone took a step too far and we could hang them out to dry. We could go over to Fox News or NPR. We could give testimonies about who has done what so that we could tear some people down and build some people back up. I mean, isn't it fun to point out the sins in other people? Isn't it really fun to say they're so wrong and I'm so right? And then Jesus shows up and ruins all of our fun. The story from Matthew, same story, what Pam just read for us. It sounds eerily similar to the one from Exodus. There is a guy who's with some friends. They go up on top of a mountain. Something miraculous happens, and it's clear that whatever happens up there, it means that things are never going to be the same. For Moses, it's the giving of the law, but for Jesus, it's entirely different. Peter was there. Peter's like us. He loves the Lord. He volunteers for the Lord. He shows up when he's asked. He finds himself up on top of this mountain, hanging out with the guy who called him out of whatever his life could have been. And as the light shines around Jesus and in Jesus and through Jesus, as Peter takes in the sight of Moses on his left and Elijah on his right, as he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. He must have been thinking about Exodus. He must have been thinking about Moses going on top of the mountain, this bright and shining light. He must have used the past to understand his present. 
It's no wonder he says, Lord, we should build dwelling places for you and Moses and Elijah. That is what the Jews were supposed to do when they encountered the divine. But the mountaintop miracle is different this time. There are not going to be any stone tablets. There's not going to be a list of do's and don'ts. There's no law by which the people can decide who is right and who is wrong. Instead, there is only a voice. And the voice says this. This is my son. He is my beloved. I am well pleased with him. Listen to his voice. How does Peter respond to this? How does Peter respond to the shining Lord, his friend, dazzling for everyone to see? Peter responds by being afraid. Today, we use the law as a set of principles by which people like us can make ourselves feel like we are good and we are perfect because we're doing all the right things. Do this. Don't do that. In the end, you'll end up being good enough. But the truth of the matter is that none of us are good enough. You know, before this mountaintop madness, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter heaven. The point of that is that no one's righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Now, contrary to how we've talked about it for so long, the law isn't about living the right way. The purpose of the law is what the law does to us. The law is the means by which God brings us to our knees. The law is the recognition that God is God and that we are not. The law is what made Peter tremble on the mountain. Because at its very best, the law compels us. It forces us to look into the mirror and see ourselves as we really are, which is no easy thing. To see all of our wickedness, to see all of our transgressions, to see all of our sins, all of our choices, all of our judgments, and then wonder to ourselves, how could God really love someone like me? That's how Peter responded the first time he met Jesus. He's out on his boat. He experiences this miracle. And the first thing he says to Jesus is, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter's proximity to Jesus forces him to see things about himself that he never would have seen otherwise. He was afraid. He was afraid because he knew, just as some of us do, that the truth of who we are is that we're not very good. As St. Paul says in Romans, None is righteous. No, not one. None is righteous. Jean Venier was a Canadian Catholic theologian, philanthropist. Uh, He grew up in Canada many, many many years ago. As a young man, he started to uh, understand and come close to the plight of those with mental disabilities. At the time, in the 40s, People with mental disabilities were ostracized, they were marginalized, they were taken from their families and their homes, they were put in institutions far away from everybody else, as if they were too great of a burden for anybody to bear. And Jean Bear, he learned about this from some uh, teachers that he had, and he thought, gosh, surely, surely there should be a different way that we should exist with fellow human beings. And so he went to an institution, and he spoke with the director of the institution, he said, I really like it if two of the men who live here could come live with me in my house. And the director thought, ha, you're welcome to have them. They don't know how to eat. They don't know how to talk. Have fun. See how long you keep them in your house. And so Jean Benair took these two men and moved them into his house with him in France. And for the next couple years, he had to learn what it's like to live with someone who's fundamentally different than you. He had to learn how to feed people who couldn't feed themselves. 
He had to learn how to address people who could address themselves, how to communicate with people who can't really communicate. And after a while, he started writing his experiences down. He got a book published, and a few people heard about it, heard about how successful he was because he started inviting more people to come live with him. And he found a community called Larsh. Anybody ever heard of Larsh before? The Larsh community. It's an intentional community where caregivers live with the people they care for. It's not that you wake up and you're with them from 9 to 5 and then you go back to your own life. You spend every moment and you live with them in your own home. It's called the Larsh community. Now, he started this many, many years ago. And today there are over 150 Larsh communities and they are in 38 different countries around the world. Throughout his life, he read all these books about his experience, about the theology. I've read half of his stuff. But what it looks like to live with people who are different than you, how you have to retrain how you interact with people, how you speak to people, how you help people. He went on these speaking tours and he's founded all these different large communities. And throughout his life, he was regarded as a living saint. You know, his patience for people who had never experienced patience was heralded as this paragon of virtue. Without his work, without his writing, without his living, there is a very good chance that our way of living with people with disabilities would not look like the way it does now. We would probably still be sending them away so that we never had to think about them, that we never have to deal with them. The reason the world looks differently about it now is in large part because of Jean Venner. At the age of 90, he died last May, having started 150 communities in all these countries across the world. And when he died, there were parades done in Canada in his honor. He received all these awards across the world. There was talk that he was going to be instantly canonized by the Catholic Church because he had just lived this perfect life. Until yesterday. Because yesterday, the Larsh Community International sent out a letter to all of their patrons across the world. And they said that after Jean Benier died, six women came forward with stories about how he had physically and emotionally abused him while he was the founder of Larsh. How he had told them that he had a mystical voice from the Lord that told them that these women needed to sleep with him, that these women needed to touch him. And for the rest of his life, he abused these women again and again and again and again. It was the first time they felt like they could ever talk about it. I pray that none of you ever experience abuse. Statistically, many of you have. And if you haven't, you probably will. But my real hope and prayer is that if you have experienced abuse, that the person who abused you isn't heralded by the rest of the world as a living saint. Can you imagine? Can you imagine watching a parade for a man who had done something so horrible to you? None is righteous. Not one. That is the point of the law. On our own, we can't even achieve a fraction of it. All that stuff that Moses brought down from the mountain, all the things we're supposed to do, all the things we're not supposed to do, they're fine only insofar as they show us that all of us are, in fact, not fine. No matter how good we think we are, no matter how bad we think we are, behind closed doors, when we think we're alone or that no one will ever find out our internet search histories, the secret thoughts of our hearts and minds, each and every one of us, are far more like Donald Trump or Pete Buttigieg or Rush Limbaugh or Jean Venner than we are like Jesus Christ. We have infinitely more in common with them than we do with the one who hung on the cross for you and me. The law 
exists to drive us toward Jesus, not as an example, not as this person whose morals we're supposed to idolize and emphasize in our own life, but as someone who does something for us that we can't do for ourselves. Jesus is the only one who is obedient to the law. He is the only one who can fulfill its demands. He is the only one whose righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. It's Jesus' love and his grace and his mercy, not our own, that has overflown onto us so that at the end of our days, we can stand before the throne justified by God through Christ. When we come close to that grace, this thing we call good news, the gospel, it brings us to our knees like Peter because if we're honest, we can't make sense of it. If we are even at all strong enough to really look into the mirror of our souls, we know that we are no better than anyone else. And yet this cloud still comes and surrounds us. This voice still speaks to us and we are still caught up in Jesus' ministry regardless. The truth of the matter is that every one of us should be very afraid. If our moral laundry were left to hang out to dry for everyone to see, friends, it wouldn't be very good. If we were compelled to share our inner thoughts and our regrettable choices and our sins and our judgments, if we had to speak those aloud in church today, no one here would ever look at us the same way ever again. But Jesus does. Jesus looks down into the deepest darkest parts of our hearts and our souls and our minds and our desires. Jesus knows us, yes, at our very best, but also at our very worst. He holds up the mirror so that we might be compelled to see ourselves as we really are. Make us afraid. But then he comes to us while we're kneeling on the ground in fear and he says, I'm going to do what you can't. It's okay. So get up and don't be afraid. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. To me, one of the most confounding things about the church, one of the most confounding things about the Lord's table is that the table is always bigger than we think it is. That the table extends farther and to more people than we would ever extend our own tables. One of the most confounding things about Jesus is that on his final night, he chose to be with people who would betray him, who would abandon him, and who would deny him. One of the things that I believe about the church, one of the things I believe about the Lord's table is that it is big enough for Donald Trump and Rush Limbaugh Pete Buttigieg, and even Jean Venier, even me, even you. That is confounding. But it's also the gospel. So would you please pray with me? Lord, help us to see that no one is beyond your grace. No one is beyond your grace. More importantly, Lord, give us grace to see that we can be better than we are that we can be different. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.